Hi, and welcome to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast looking at international politics from Berlin with me, Benjamin Tallis. And me, Aaron Gashburnett. Join us for an expert look at how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. Hello and welcome back to Berlin Side Out, a new podcast on international politics about how Germany sees the world and the world sees Germany. In association with the German Council on Foreign Relations, I'm Aaron Gashburnett, a journalist specializing in German politics, and I'm here with my co-host and friend Benjamin Tallis, a senior research fellow here at the Council. Now, Ben, we had some illuminating high-level workshops recently, both here at the Council in Berlin and on a very special trip to Prague, where we had an event with the Czech think tank Europeum on neo-idealism and grand strategy for liberal democracy, something we introduced in episode four this season. And we promised then to bring some of those discussions to you. That's right, Aaron. We had a double header of events in Berlin on the Friday night and Prague on the Sunday that aimed to push forward our thinking about how we develop grand strategy for liberal democracies in this time of geopolitical flux, based around the idea that democracies need to manage four simultaneous mega transitions that they're experiencing, geopolitical, geoeconomic, ecological, and technological. And they need to get those right, and they need to get those right in an integrated way if they're to actually win the systemic competition against autocratic and authoritarian regimes and successfully renew our democratic politics and economics to create a brighter future for free societies. Now, many of you will already be familiar with the basics of neo-idealism, which, as Aaron said, we introduced in episode four, but we see this as a potential grand strategy for liberal democracies, which is in need of development in order to become consistent across those policy fields. But as a quick reminder, neo-idealism is a morally-based approach to geopolitics, grounded in the power of values conceived as ideals to strive for. And those values could include human rights and fundamental freedoms, social and cultural liberalism, democratic governance, self-determination for democratic societies, and I would say perhaps most importantly, the right of citizens in those societies to a hopeful future. But, lest we be confused, this isn't some dreamy, utopian, wishful thinking. Neo-idealism has a hard edge. The neo-idealists assert that democracy and liberal values need to be defended where they're threatened. And to do that, we need to arm ourselves, not only with military capabilities, but also with the mindset to act and the reasons and arguments to inspire our populations to join us in doing so. For neo-idealists, I think those liberal values are not luxuries to be set aside when hard-nosed interest comes to call, as you once said, but rather for neo-idealists, our values are our interests. And what I think these neo-idealist politicians that we've talked about before, such as Kaya Kallas, Gabrielis Landsbergis, Jan Lipavsky, uh, and even to an extent Ursula von der Leyen, but above all, Vladimir Zelensky, I think what they've done is to open a door to a better kind of geopolitics, and now we need to walk through it. But to do that, we actually need to develop it into a consistent form of grand strategy across those policy fields that can guide us in marshalling all the resources at our disposal to master those mega transitions. In short, to become the grand strategy that liberal democracies need to win the systemic competition against authoritarians, but also to win it for ourselves and to compellingly restore the hope of progress of a better future and make that more meaningful, more tangible to people in our liberal democratic societies around the world. And in Prague in particular, we discussed elements of that around three pillars, defending liberal democracy, renewing liberal democracy, and spreading liberal democracy. And in addition to the public panels, which were live streamed, and which there'll be transcripts available of, we had several workshops where we gathered our participants together in different configurations to discuss these themes for Berlin Side Out. And so we're very pleased to bring that to you today. And one of the key discussions we had is the one 
one you're about to listen to right now, listeners. One thing we wanted to stress is that neo-idealism is a broad church that can unite people from different political traditions who share one important thing in common. They believe in liberal democracy and want to see it given new life and impetus. As such, we were joined in Prague by former Canadian immigration minister Chris Alexander, a previous guest uh, on our show before. He's also been Canadian ambassador to Afghanistan as well. Uh, as well as renowned British journalist and former BBC Newsnight business editor and Channel 4 economics editor Paul Mason, along with Jessica Toll, who is the Labour parliamentary candidate in the next British election for Bournemouth West, and she also chairs the Labour Foreign Policy Group. Let's listen in. Welcome to a very special Berlin Side Out panel from Prague, where we are internationalizing the Seitenwende, one of our famous uh, favorite themes. Russia's invasion of Ukraine did reveal that whether conservative, liberal, social democrat, Christian democrat, or green, uh, there's a lot of common principles Democrats do still agree on. Uh, multi-partisan agreement seems to be getting rarer sometimes in liberal democracies. Uh, why do you suppose... Uh, we've seen it on the issue specifically of support for Ukraine. Well, the first thing to say is that to acknowledge that it has. Um, for example, as, as a Brit, um, you know, I was very active in the run-up to the conflict, monitoring the Russian build-up, making arguments against uh, those on the British left who were supporting Putin's argumentation about the, for the draft treaties, you know, that, that we want East Europe back. And so when words turn into action, you have to support it. And the, the British government, which I you know, vehemently disagree with and campaign against on most issues, was proactive in sending the NLAW uh, short-range anti-tank missiles. Before that, they had fronted a maritime demonstration, we should call it, in, in the summer of 2021, sending HMS Defender to um, close to Crimean waters, armed to the teeth with journalists, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, and cameras. So first thing to acknowledge is that there is a cross-party consensus and that what the left of social democracy, which I'm part of, brings to it is it can bring, there, there are attributes that it can bring. It can bring um, links and connections, for example, with the Ukrainian left and the Ukrainian labor movement. Most of the conservative uh, people I've, I've met who are active in support of Ukraine either didn't know or weren't properly aware of the amount of you know, trade union, left-wing self-organization that has gone on especially in the early days of the uh, invasion. And so we were able to say to them, look, we, do you know about this? And so I think there is a cross-party in Britain consensus about support for Ukraine, where, however, there is, a, going forward, there are, I think we should discuss, there are where the Western support for Ukraine needs to go next, not everybody will come. I think it doesn't matter what side of the political fence you're on if you're in a liberal democracy. You believe that liberal democracy is the best way to deliver national security, prosperity, and for all your citizens to thrive. And the invasion of Ukraine was the first reminder that we'd had in a long time that that is fragile that democracies are fragile, they're hard fought. Um, and our colleagues in the Baltics and Eastern Europe know that far better than we do. So the support that we've seen is a real recognition of the fact that we have to keep fighting for the values that we believe in, especially in a context of democratic backsliding across the world that we've seen in the, in the past you know, decade or so. I want to talk about, really at the granular and base level, why I think there has been so much popular support for doing the right thing over Ukraine. For me, being in Kiev right up until 24 hours before the invasion began, and even though people were really worried, 
about what was happening. I remember on this Saturday before the invasion, going out into central Kiev, there's huge crowds of 200 school children doing, I call it TikTok dancing, and then classic young couples arm in arm walking through the streets. To all intents and purposes, it's like Milan, it's like Barcelona, it has that vibe about it in peacetime. And I, I thought that Ukrainian people didn't just rise up in 2014 in favour of a geopolitical project or a having a, an organised relationship to the EU. They established a kind of modus operandi of living in a democratic society. Of course, it's a flawed democracy. It has oligarchs, it has uh, organised crime, and the rest of it has racism. But the thought that propelled me into the activism I've done over Ukraine is why should those kids dancing up and down Kreshatik, the main street of, of Kiev, why should they have to risk their lives for the thing that we in Europe established in 1945, the right to live in a multi-party democracy and the rule of law? Of course, there are many parts of the world where these things have never been achieved. And I think, what are we helping in Ukraine? It is that. Absolutely. And that's the wake up call that Ukrainians have provided to us all and the chance that Ukrainians have given to us all to actually recover the best of ourselves in that way and understand that we can disagree about policy. But as you said, the fundamentals unite us. We actually have more in common in that way. Chris, do you think that's something we've, we have been forgetting in recent years? Absolutely. Um, and taking it for granted, not understanding because civic education, citizen education doesn't always ground people in the story of, you know, how we came to have, um, you know, over most of our lifetimes, a growing set of liberal democracies, what sacrifices were made to get there in world wars, in um, creating the institutions that, that underpin that success. And, and you, in this big invasion last year, um, was a, a category change in that there's been lots of conflict. We spent a generation uh, debating and deploying against terrorism in different parts of the world. Um, there have been internal conflicts. We had the responsibility to protect that many people signed on for to try and stop genocide, which was happening in countries like Libya and Syria, unfortunately. Uh, but the Russian invasion was a state-to-state -state challenge on a scale in Europe that had not been seen since 1945. Uh, and this is really Vladimir Putin and his whole society channeling Hitler and Stalin and saying, no, that country is ours. Our identity uh, needs to include a subjugated Ukraine. And it's just a horrific uh, thought that that happened in 2022. Uh, and so people had to wake up too late. I mean, there had been serious encroachment in 2014. That was a, that should have been a bigger wake up call than it was. But I think it has opened up a middle a consensus that is hugely valuable, uh, that now needs to be mobilized. And we also have to, I think there's also a dawning realization that this isn't just a Russia that's invaded Ukraine. This is a Russia that had a very sophisticated uh, campaign over at least 20 years, probably longer, to fuel the polarization, to fuel the dysfunction on our sides, uh, to make us look away and ignore what they were preparing in Georgia, Syria, and now Ukraine. We're fighting not only for Ukraine's sovereignty, they are fighting with our support for their sovereignty, but also to bring our political culture back to its norm, where the center is the vibrant, creative place that we know it needs to be. And I actually see that 
coming faster than one realizes. There are European countries where the center has reclaimed the initiative. That center is going to be a, a, a ground that can be used in different ways to, to carry us forward, regardless of the, the, the polarizing debates of, the last, of recent years. I fully agree that it can be that platform, but let's not forget also that what you rightly say about Russian active measures against liberal democracies mainly work in cracks that we've made ourselves in our own societies. And while I think it's been terrific to see people from across the political spectrum coming together to support the defense of liberal democracy where it's threatened, it's in those issues of how we went about spreading liberal democracy, but also about how we performed it at home in our own societies where the divisions emerged. Before we come to that, before we talk about the divisions, it is just the center that's supporting this. There are people on the really quite far right of the Tory party who support Ukraine, and people like me who are on the left of the Labour Party it, there's a there's a there's a it, it's the, it's our attachment to a way of living that we've seen actually flourish in Eastern Europe where we're sitting here in Prague and then in Ukraine. Well, as, as any Czech would immediately correct you, Central Europe here, Paul, for sure. And <laughs> tell, tell me you're Central Europe, and I'll tell you who you are, as Timothy Gutnash uh, famously said. But this this is right that feeling of connection that people develop to Ukraine. I've been I've been working on Ukraine for 20 years, and listening to Nick Robinson on the BBC on the 25th of February on the rooftop of his hotel guiding listeners' eyes around the city, saying this dynamic, vibrant European city. That showed to me a different level of connection between the media, certainly at that point, and Ukraine and Ukrainians than before. One's mental world has been full of people who would say this. It's the very fact that you can and we, you know, white Europeans, can see this European city as like ourselves that has motivated us to do this. And I think we have to acknowledge that we have let large parts of the world that are non-European live in an absolute hellhole, which we call the rules-based order. And we have to acknowledge that in order to be able to, to, to avoid the charge of hypocrisy and double standards. However, the fact that it is a developed world European economy and society that is now under attack is significant because I, you can't avoid pointing to it because it says, put crudely, the conflagration at the periphery is now at the centre, and that is a significant qualitative change. Right. I mean, it could happen to you. Yeah. Very yeah. clearly, is the Ukrainians are very much like us, and they've also gone out of their way to show that very well. But what Paul just mentioned, this places we've let live in the rules-based order, which hasn't worked for them, that's been part of the problem, hasn't it? It is because we haven't had the political will, and certainly not the tools, the capacity to uh, uphold the rules in some of these places. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan. Brilliant progress for 20 years for girls, for the national economy, for institutions, for clinics, for health. There was an insurgency backed by a large neighboring country, Pakistan. We didn't deal with that. Uh, the countries around Iran, let's not get into the Iraq war, I think we all agreed that was a terrible mistake, but Iran took advantage of it, uh, generated militias and proxies in Iraq. Uh, when the US withdrew from Iraq uh, and ISIS filled part of the vacuum, Iran again uh, expanded its influence in Syria to count, both to counter ISIS and prop up its ally Assad. And that led to more Iranian influence in Lebanon. We see Hezbollah, as you say, armed to the teeth, Hamas essentially an Iranian. So Iran has, for 20 years, been pushing this regional agenda of conflict into many countries, and we haven't had the ability to counteract that. And Vladimir Putin, I mean, we could talk about China, we can talk about Russia in Africa, uh, we can talk about Russia's war in Syria, but Vladimir Putin saw all of that. 
our failure to uphold these basic principles in those countries. And he invaded Georgia in 2008. There was no reaction, basically. And he thought, well, if I go for what I really want, which is to have Ukraine back, there probably won't be a reaction as well. And he was right. In 2014, there was next to no reaction. But he was wrong because of what Paul says. There was a civil society reaction and a national transformation, the revolution of dignity in 2014, that really set Ukraine up for the level of resistance that they have mobilized over the last year and a half. Um, so Ukraine's success is kind of a culmination of all of our failures <laughs> because it emboldened Putin to make a terrible mistake, which has run into Ukrainian national will, now backed by all of us. And, and as Paul says, this is the test. We could have had the test in Syria. We could have had it by sanctioning Pakistan. We could have had it. That's done. That's in the past. The test now is Ukraine and perhaps uh, a conflict that is spreading because there are links between Russia, Iran, and Hamas uh, to other places. But the main theater is Ukraine. And our ability to uphold these basic principles elsewhere in Europe and elsewhere in the world is going to depend on whether we succeed in Ukraine. I think what you're describing are some very different situations, though, as well. So if we go back a bit in history, there was a lot of optimism in the 90s about the potential for democracy. And we saw the Iron Curtain come down. We saw a lot of the transition. Um, we had some very successful military interventions in places like Sierra Leone and Kosovo. And what then happened was potentially a bit of overconfidence on the part of you know, the UK and our allies. But I think we lost sight of the difficulty of what we were trying to do or what we thought we were trying to do. So you mentioned at the beginning spreading democracy. Again, we'd forgotten that is a long, hard-fought process. If you look at the UK, it starts with the Magna Carta in the 1200s, and it's slow, small concessions to democracy. By 1928, we'd almost got there. And all of a sudden, we're thinking, we can, we can promote regime change, and all of a sudden, it will be sunny uplands for everyone. It's not that, because it takes a long time of embedding a culture of liberal democracy and those values. Um, and we didn't respect the process that a lot of countries needed to go through to get there. The difference with Ukraine is we're talking about a functioning democracy then being attacked by an autocratic um, regime, very, very different to what we'd seen in places, I guess, like Afghanistan and Iraq. And I suppose as well that if you are looking at a democracy that is threatened the same way that Ukraine is and you understand how long it takes to build up a democracy, that's why it is so much more important to defend that democracy because it is so hard fought. If it falls, it's not necessarily guaranteed to immediately build itself back up again afterward. That's right. I mean, this is one of the lessons that neo-idealism is trying to learn from past mistakes in that regard, to not just directly go in and impose democracy where it doesn't exist at gunpoint, but rather to defend it where it does, to give it the chance to thrive and to set that example. But as well as the mistakes, I mean, Chris, you, I think you spoke for all of us saying the Iraq invasion was a huge mistake. Um, but that gave a bad name to spreading democracy in that way, and, and rightly so. It also undermined the credibility of us as democratic actors around the world. But moreover, is it also were we undermined by letting ourselves down at home? Yes. If we look at, there are instances in all of our countries where 
Um, you know, in the UK, we've had laws to clamp down on trade union rights and protest. And, you know, we've seen, uh, you know, a, quite, a rise quite rapidly of what many could describe as authoritarian right wing parties who want to undermine values of tolerance, etc. And the Chinese, I think, called out the US for in the in the face of the Black Lives Matter protests about, you know, how can you tell us how to be a good democracy or a good government when you don't even have a handle on it yourselves. So I think, for me, one of the most positive and constructive things that um, Western liberal democracies could do would be to face it inward for a while and actually support each other to work through some of the issues, some of the democratic backsliding, um, and think about, right, how do we really live up to these values that, you know, we believe are the right way forward, the best way to deal with citizens, to run governments. Getting our own house in order is the most important first step to thinking about how our engagement with the international community then goes. As you've said, there is uh, all is not necessarily rosy at home, and there's a decent amount of discontent, which is why we also talk about renewing liberal democracy to uh, keep it as something that is worth um, actually defending. Um, some of this disaffection has also led to some of these extremist elements in our own democracies, um, including openly pro-Russian and pro-Putin ones that capitalize on, on these disaffected voters. Um, and I would certainly think or certainly say that while the majority of Canadians, Germans, Brits uh, support Ukraine, and Germany's public in particular actually wants uh, its government to do more uh, for Ukraine, there is still this growing discontent. Um, there's still these extremist parties um, that uh, are a symptom of this growing impatience with business as usual. Uh, how do we keep the public on side uh, about, um, particularly when we have to commit real resources uh, to our own defense and to Ukraine's defense when there's also questions of, you know, why are we spending this money when we have so many other problems that we have to fix? I would challenge the framing there because uh, for me, what we're, what we're seeing isn't a sort of the norm is liberal democracy in the West and there's a, there's a sort of unfortunate deviation from it. I think we're seeing a process of uh, uh, Antonio Gramsci, the, uh, the Italian Marxist in the 20s and victim of fascism, um, described it as an elemental process of disintegration. I'm afraid I think that's what's happening to the post-1945 order and it's what's happening to Western society. Um, that sounds doomy. I don't think it's irreversible. I think things can be done to stop it and reverse it. But for me, it's as dire as that. The Pew Research Group surveyed 17 countries about sources of sort of right-wing discontent. And it, the strongest correlation of being sort of a right-wing populist was, being, was feeling economically insecure. We have an economic system that, for what, however much some of us may like it, makes a lot of people feel economically insecure. But to me, it's not just economic insecurity that's driven it. It's, there was a kind of mass consciousness, I call it the, the neoliberal self, the self attuned to living in a highly competitive market society where you have to have sharp elbows and, 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 you, and the market computes the best outcome for everyone. Once that ceased to function, you know, in 2008, 2011, financial crisis, it's not just that people felt more in, economically insecure, they felt like their worldview no longer existed. That they, they couldn't make sense of the world through economics anymore. Everything was economics for free market uh, ideology. Once you're away from that, you have to ask yourself, well, if my core value isn't the market, what is it? And for some people, like me, it's, 
international social solidarity. But for many people, it's their ethnic identity. That's, their, that's all that's left, or religious identity. And so when it's challenged, you're, it becomes an existential thing. That's what's driving the, the disintegration process. And so when you say, well, can we get a handle on it? Can we, the, the thinking political liberal elites of the West, get a handle on it? I think we can, but we have to recognise what the it is. Very interesting point, and I think it comes together with that the mode of neoliberal globalization that we saw as dominant in that uh, 20 years, certainly after the end of the, the Cold War, which not only put that market logic first and put the state first and foremost as a facilitator of that market, um, but also proposed a model of globalization that would increase aggregate benefits in the whole, but it didn't redistribute them. And so these benefits were skewed. And telling people in post-industrial areas in developed societies in the West that everything's fine, that they've lost their job because someone in China is better off has proved to be a pretty massive failure of this. We didn't provide the retraining, we didn't provide the reskilling to give people those frameworks of meaning. And at the same time, the internationalized element of that, I think really, for many people on the progressive side of politics, be that progressive conservatives or progressives uh, on the center left, really evacuated national identity. And certainly in the UK, which when, when I grew up, thinking about who would wave a St. George's Cross flag, that wasn't me. 100% wasn't me, but that left that field open of national identification to people I would strongly disagree with. So how do we, again, Chris, how would you say we would revive that point of national identification with keeping the, some good sides of liberal economics? Do we need to abandon firmly, though, neoliberal economics? Civic nationalism, I suppose, right? You know, you don't simply abandon the flag to the far right, basically. We're definitely not going to do away with national identity as one of the building blocks anytime soon. But you're right, it has been co-opted by these extremes that were formed over 10 years of disruption that was too rapid, too harsh, too uh, little compensated for in, with social programs and so forth. And so there was this group that was feeling disoriented, left out. And then we also had forces from outside our societies interfering and amplifying these messages, and particularly through social media and sometimes political corruption, supporting extremist parties that literally pulled things apart. So how do we get back? We have to look at what works. I mean, I, I'm married to a Dane, but I, I think quite apart from that, I would identify the Nordic countries, countries around the Baltic, as perhaps the most successful group of societies at the moment because of the prosperity which is undeniably there, well above the European average, and because of the sense of inclusion that was never lost. Very robust social programs, and very low corporate taxes, and very high rates of investment, not just by their own companies, but by international firms, because of a political stability. They also never lost a sense of this national political narrative. They were a bit harsh on migration. I mean, I, as a former Canadian immigration minister, might debate some of those policies, but they had to be decisive because they saw it affecting the social cohesion in their countries in profound ways. And that turned out to be something that underpinned a sort of steady, healthy national narrative that hasn't been as affected by propaganda as the English-speaking world has been uh, and where the center has held. There is an internationalism still in those countries. There is a sense that Europe must act in Ukraine, must enlarge again. They haven't retreated into a, a European bubble, but they've maintained a national viability that a lot of other countries are struggling to have. They've reclaimed the center. I think a lot of it has to do with reclaiming this narrative and keeping the 
extremes really on the margins where they belong or out altogether. But that vision, that narrative, that tangible sense of identity which comes together in the ways you described, Jessica, that has to be meaningful to people, right? They have to be able to touch that somehow. Yeah, I was just thinking, so I spent a lot of my childhood in the US and in America they're very good at, you know, waving the flag and feeling proud of their heritage. It's a bit unusual and uncomfortable for Brits sometimes to see that expression. And the Brexit debate really created this division between like you're a global elite and you're, you know, proud to be English or British and in a very unhelpful way. And I think Paul's observation was spot on that, you know, a lot of these challenges bubble up when people feel economically insecure and migration becomes a much bigger part of the debate things like that. And so I was thinking about in terms of, you know, how do you start to challenge that? And how do you sort of build this one sort of narrative around national pride? And Britain did that very well in 1997 with the sort of Cool Britannia movement. Um, And how do you then build those links of global solidarity? And I think the Labour Party in Britain has it right now saying, look, we've got loads of challenges and problems in this country, but we need to fundamentally be focused on growth. But it's growth that learns the lessons from our previous transitions. So not going, right, we're just going to get rid of this industry and not worry about retraining people or what the jobs of the future are going to be. And are also taking into account the challenges that we will face in the future. So we're looking at existential impacts of climate change. We're looking at fundamentally altering impacts of technology and AI. Um, And those challenges, we can't solve those as one nation alone. Those have to be challenges that we solve together and we think about the impacts together. Well, this is it, exactly. And I'm very interested here from all of you about what role you think allies can play in this, in holding us up to our own standards actually saying, you know, you're making an awful mistake here and how do you do something about that? But also mastering this technological change is going to be key to actually maintaining the material edge that liberal democracies claim is part of our USP as well. Yeah, I suppose this is also something that um, something that Germans are now getting more used to <laughs> being lectured at by allies, um, which is lecturing that I certainly welcome. Um, but I, I think perhaps it also might help to sometimes uh, give a friendly nudge to some other countries as well. I would like to acknowledge that we've talked about narrative and all of that's very important. Important. And also, like, Cool Britannia in 1997. I remember growing up in Canada at the time and just, like, being obsessed with the Spice Girls, of course, and all of the I other s- stuff. I still want that Union Jack dress. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> but think of how powerful that was. You know, it reached across the pond, and it's, uh, it, it started my own fascination with the UK as, as a country, which, of course, continues into my personal life. But um, beyond narrative, I want to also ask a question about policy, because, I mean, as, as important as the narrative is, are we paying attention and being bold enough on policy? It almost seems sometimes as if the Democratic Center is afraid to be bold on policy. So to revitalize um, and renew our democracies, what kind of visions for that do you think are necessary? Yeah, Paul, what is to be done? <laughs> Big question, Paul. yellow. Uh, right. <laughs> I think we have the basics of it with Bidenomics. There's two of us around the table from the British Labour Party, and and one of the things I'm most excited about is the way in which Labour has basically adopted as a programme a version of Bidenomics. You know, Bidenomics consists of basically de-risking private sector investment in in energy, in clean energy and infrastructure. And now, of course, it's going to be military as well. You secure the energy security of a country. You give people you know, better jobs, more skilled jobs. You reshore the jobs and you friendshore 
Uh, so you're creating an international network of, of produ productive capacity that is no longer reliant on China, a bit reliant on Taiwanese semiconductors, which is a bit of a problem. And then you, you also secure your own democracy. So that the idea of economic energy and democratic security arising from state-driven, mission-driven economics is the way forward for, for the Western world. I think we're seeing the European Union understand that. A, a really, I mean, important milestones are Jake Sullivan's speech in, uh, in, in April, where he spelled out, yeah, you know, this the is- Bro The Brookings speech. The right, Brookings yeah. speech, where Jake Sullivan spells out what the, what the social impact of abandoning globalization is. The European Union could have said, oh, this is protectionism. We don't like this, this is unfair competition. Instead it said, okay, we'll join you in attempting to de-conflict Deconflict our relationship over steel. Let's both do together um, projects to remove our reliance on uh, Chinese rare earth metals. Let's let's collaborate transatlantic with a kind of Bidenomics. As a left member of the Labour Party and left social democrat, what what I, the, the the only illusion I think people still cling to is that this is the way. Let me put it politely. What happens when the market doesn't deliver some of this stuff? Is the question. So suppose I want to say, I want to green the British steel industry. You know, uh, Britain only has one major steel plant left, two I or three. I was going to say, listeners, there is still a British steel Yeah, industry. there is a big, yeah. a, a huge um, industrial plant in South Wales, Port Talbot. Um, we, we, need to, we need to end reliance on, on fossil fuels in the making of that steel and turn it into a, a, an electrical process. Okay, the, the estimate is that's going to cost three billion a year. Um, using market, using a very generous state subsidy this year, the government managed to le leverage 750 million from the private sector, from Tata Steel, with 500 million of its own. That's not three billion a year. So my question to, to, to the, the centre of, of politics is, what do you do when, what, where does the other, where's the money come from? Well, it's going to have to come from borrow and spend. Many people in the political centre observing the indebtedness of, of capitalism as it is, they're worried about that. So my warning is, it's going to have to become more statist than you think it is. Chris, let's, uh, let's come to you a little bit on this question because um, I, I want to pick up what uh, Paul was saying specifically about friendshoring and what we like to call on Berlin side out the national security premium where you pay a little bit more um, to source you know, from your friends, from your allies, uh, from, uh, you know, and not from authoritarians, places that are ultimately uh, tremendously risky. Is there a, a way to actually fix this problem and perhaps uh, contribute um, to the team. Yeah, I think when we put it in these global terms in ways that everyone can understand, it's very clear what role each democracy has to play. We are seeing this. Like, it's not a choice anymore, reshoring, friendshoring. It is happening because everyone instinctively in boardrooms, in the street, sees that just naked efficiency uh, a price imperative is not the only consideration when you're deciding where your food comes from or where your energy comes from. You have to think about security. You have to think about uh, countries that are threats to the international system and 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 and, and hostile to our values. Uh, and so that has started in earnest. It doesn't mean that we're not in a global system. There are democracies everywhere. There are democracies we should be much closer to in Africa. Democracy has, in some ways, you know, apart from Wagner-sponsored coups, uh, done less backsliding in Africa than in many other parts of the world. So let's bring ourselves together, keeping in mind that security imperative as democracies wherever they are in the world. But there are three 
transitions that are three policy imperatives, because we were talking about policy, that are, that are quite crucial. One is this issue of migration. I think it's very clear from American politics to European politics that um, disorderly, large-scale, um, spontaneous uh, migration can lead to polarization and can lead to political chaos. Um, Rules-based migration, which must include, must happen on the basis of people selected for their skills, for their uh, economic, for their competencies to some extent, but also has to include refugees and people uh, moving because they are persecuted and because um, of their the humanitarian imperative to help them. That should be a feature of everyone's policy agenda. But we also need, if we're going to have stable democracies and more democracies, but there are also two other imperatives that are really important in a Canadian context. One is an energy transition that is not pie in the sky, that, it, that actually happens. Uh, we, it's going to involve more nuclear. It's going to involve uh, more sustainable generation by wind, by solar, eventually hydrogen. But in the meantime, there is going to be oil and gas as cleanly recovered as possible uh, that everyone is going to need, especially developing countries as they try to get onto this ladder of uh, higher rates of growth and higher uh, levels of income. Uh, and Canada is the only democracy that is a major exporter of these products. The United States is caught up because we've been asleep at the switch. Canada's gas and oil goes through the Gulf of Mexico, not through our West Coast or Atlantic ports because we've neglected infrastructure. Uh, that, that needs to change. And we have to take full account of the fact that we've empowered countries hostile to democracy, including Russia, uh, by neglecting our role on this, on this front. A and if we just send you know, factories, industrial production to countries like China, whose climate records are atrocious, we are not making any progress on the global agenda. Chris, let, let me push you on two things and then throw it to, to Jessica to come in on this as well. On the first thing, just to clearly get your view on this, what Paul said about we, we don't know how statist yet we're going to have to be. And do you see also part of the national security premium and as that state investment, even at a time when there is real competition for resources, because we need to invest in military and we need to invest in infrastructure and, and, and. Let's throw to the others, but my third point was going to be everyone needs to invest properly in defense. And this isn't so much an issue for our British colleagues. I mean, there is retooling and scaling up that still needs to be done for an already strong contributor like the UK. Canada is way behind. And, and many other countries have been free riders uh, on this global security uh, system on which every democracy depends. Uh, in our case, it's, it's really abject dependence on a US umbrella. That's not healthy. It's not healthy for the United States. It's not healthy for any of us. Uh, and smart investments in defense and security are going to take people of a very long way, not only in Ukraine, but in kind of underpinning as systemic players, as networked players, as collaborative true team players, which we know democracies are at their best, we win every time. The autocracies are not networked that way. They are networked in delivering hate and delivering extremism and delivering disinformation, but not in these other ways that generate prosperity 
generate a sense of inclusion, uh, generate, you know, underpin the values that, that, that inspire us all. Right. And I mean, talking about generating a sense of inclusion, driving prosperity and so on, I'm going to push this issue on migration because we know from all the research on migration that it benefits all three main parties concerned, sending country, receiving country, migrants themselves. Yet we've got ourselves into a situation in too many countries in Europe, and Britain is a prime example of this, Britain's migration policy by no extent could be seen as a, uh, a sign of liberal democracy in a healthy state because we don't have politicians who are actually making the discursive case for this. We've lost that discursive battle. Even when Ed Miliband took over the Labour Party, his switch on that, away from the Blair and Brown years, was a real surrender to actually what is evidence-free analysis of our best interests. I would agree. The debate about migration in Britain and many other countries is disappointing. And it is completely driven by trying to assuage some of the feelings that people have about economic insecurity. And in Britain at the moment, it's being particularly used to mask a lot of the failings of government. And I keep calling it a bit of a manufactured crisis because we supposedly left the EU to take back control of our borders, but we've seen highest net migration ever, I think, in the UK. 700,000 net in Net um, influx in one year. But what the government is doing is trying to then blame all of that on asylum seekers coming to the UK, failing to process asylum claims, and then generating a £7 million a day bill for hotels. So it's this kind of circular thing that aggravates everybody. And obviously... Most people migrate because they want to improve their lives, the lives of their families. They want to work, contribute, make a better lives for themselves. We haven't gotten that right. You know, in the UK at the moment, we are focused on sorting out the asylum crisis that the government has generated. And we've been talking very openly about putting more resources into the Home Office for caseworkers to process claims, um, to get the levels of claims um, back to where they were before, stopping the ho this hotel rubbish. But we're not quite there on migration and we haven't really set out exactly what it is that we need. But clearly we have skill shortages in lots of industries and we're focusing on how we might upskill people who live within the UK at, at the moment. But I think what all of these conversations is doing is, is really teasing out that there is a delicate balance with a lot of these issues. We obviously live in a highly interdependent world, but we're also living in a world now where people are really feeling the pinch in their pockets. Trying to work through some of those interdependencies, and it's, yes, it's about policy, but it is also so much about getting the narrative right to helping people feel like in the longer term, they will be better off, and that's challenging. The criticism leveraged at politicians is that they're often far too focused on the short term and trying to do something different in this context is going to be difficult. Which is again where working with allies can help because what broadening the context, I mean that was Jean Monnet's genius with creating the European Union, it was widen the horizon, widen the horizon of decision making. And this, I mean what Chris said about having organised migration, well managed migration, that means creating enough supply there, it means creating enough ways in for people who legitimately want to move for the reasons you said, but that seems to be a very hard political sell, Paul. I think um, one of the things we can learn from the 1930s is that when you're fighting the far right and, and far right challenges to democracy, um, you have to have a theory of the subconscious. Wilhelm Reich, the psychiatrist, said to the German communist, stop quoting unemployment figures at the unemployed. Um, because the Nazis pulled them all into the same hall the next day and talk about blood, soil, honour, 
the Jews. You, it, you, you have to understand the appeal to the subconscious. And when Suella Braverman, our current Home Secretary in Britain, she, she made a very interesting speech saying but something like, by the standards of human international human rights, about a billion people have the right to be refugees in Britain. So, so the subconscious, listening to that, generates, we've got 50,000 came in, uh, in in a year. And as you say, uh, Jessica, that 700,000 net migration last year, legal migration, but 50,000 refugees. So those 50,000 refugees appeal to the subconscious of the right, far-right inclined person as a potential billion. That's what Braverman is saying, the subconscious. And this is the second thing, the subconscious generalizes and it has no sense of time. So it also says, they are coming tomorrow. And so when the, the power of that rhetoric you have to accept that it's powerful. This is what, uh, coming back to the 30s, the rationalist centre of European politics didn't understand the power of subconscious appeals to fear. And we, you don't combat them with appeals to rationality. You've got to find a way of, of short-circuiting and, and making that, um, that subconscious dialogue that's going on between far-right politics and a lot of people. You've got to find a way of exploding its logic. And I'm not sure we're finding that, but... No, and it is, you know, social democratic parties win when they appeal to hope. And that's what we're missing in a lot of the narrative at the moment is, you know, what is the hopeful future? What are we trying to build together? And I think we're trying to do that through policy interventions and policy pronouncements rather than, you know, building that vision for the future. I don't know the British situation as well as you do, but I don't think that appeal to fear is working anymore for Braverman or others. It still is Trump's appeal. The southern border, you know, which he mismanaged, and now he accuses Biden of mismanaging. Uh, I mean, there are reasons why that's a flashpoint in the US. The US has not thoroughly reformed, renewed its immigration policy since the early 1990s. Successive administrations have failed to get a grip on the southern border and other issues. And Trump has exploited that, and, and Paul is absolutely right. This, this is a, a visceral appeal. That, but it only takes you so far when the real motivation for those appeals is exposed. And in Trump's case, January 6th, mm. his wish to avoid going to prison, you know, his naked lunge for more power is, is increasingly exposed. I don't think he'll be president again. But Jessica's right that we have no power against these extremists on the far right, the far left, however they style themselves, if we don't articulate and have leaders that articulate this vision of where we're going. Yeah. And it has to be a larger one of democracies being closer together, more inclusive societies, a narrative that's more exciting and compelling than ever because it includes all of us, because it is technologically advanced, culturally enriched, and where we're actually standing up to some of the issues that brought us down repeatedly over the last century and certainly over this period of globalization that was blind to values to a certain extent. Russian impunity, Russian neo-imperialism, however you want to call it, Russian fascism, has done a lot of damage to Europe, to Africa, to Venezuela. Uh, the fact that no one has stood up to that until the Ukrainians did last year, and that we're not standing up enough is one of the defining issues of our time, and getting that right is gonna carry us forward. There are other issues relating to China. 
which is so hostile and increasingly hostile under Chairman Xi to our values. You know, we all agree the state has a huge role to play. Conservatives need to buy into this. The, neo, the, 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 the libertarianism that some in my party at home in Canada embrace, the idea that you can do things without the government is absurd and unrealistic. But Xi in China is literally eliminating the private sector. I talk to my Chinese entrepreneur friends and they say, we are not entrepreneurs anymore. There's a guy from the party over here, uh, they call the shots, all the credit comes from the government. That is not a model that works either, and we need to, uh, we need to say that. I suppose that what you were saying also, though, is precisely what uh, one of the reasons why the Ukrainians have inspired us so much, and particularly President Zelensky, who stood up for democracy and finally, I guess, woke us all up and gave us that inspiration. But also, I would also argue um, much of the rest of, of Ukrainian democratic society. I think one of the most um, touching images for me right after the invasion was Ukrainian parliamentarians, you know, a day or two after the invasion, taking selfies uh, together in parliament, in the Rada. And basically, uh, as a statement, saying the Rada is still working. You know, the, regardless of, of this existential crisis that we are in and this incredibly intense moment, and at that time, we weren't sure how long Ukraine was going to be able to hold out. And yet, these uh, Democrats were saying, we're still Democrats and the institutions of this country are still working, must still continue to work. What was striking about some of these photos was the spectrum, the, the number of, of MPs from across the spectrum in Ukraine that came together to do this. We do see uh, you know, more agreement on Ukraine in Finland, for example, across the spectrum, whether it's, it's left to right. That's not something that we necessarily see in other countries, particularly uh, if we think about the Republicans in the US, the Social Democrats in Germany, even Labour in the UK. Paul, I know you have some experience with this as well. Uh, the whole question of support for Ukraine is more controversial within these parties, and sometimes we see more cleavages within these parties than we do um, you know, across the, the broad centre. Uh, why do you suppose that is, and how do you actually address that democratically? We need to build coalitions around issues that sometimes include uh, subgroups from each party. I mean, in a healthy democracy, and coalition-driven politics, the Netherlands, the Nordic countries, uh, this happens all the time. Parties are created, disbanded, uh, adjusted all the time because the issues change and people fall in and out of the agenda. Um, in, in the English-speaking world, in Westminster democracies, we have more established parties that, that don't evolve so much, but there are wings that get marginalized and come to the center, and there's no reason why uh, you know, the U.S. Congress shouldn't have a speaker that is selected by some Republicans, supported by some Democrats. I mean, that, it's amazing to think that has apparently never happened in a century. Uh, there's a chance it will happen now. We, I think, around this table all agree that would be extremely healthy because there's an issue uh, that drives a large number in both parties and would put the fringes of those two parties, uh, especially the Republicans, where they belong on the, th on the fringes and out of power. So issue-driven alliances of convenience, I think, are, are what voters want to see uh, when the parties are too rigid uh, or too polarized within themselves. And it's not beyond our wisdom to make that happen. Voters give our populations the idea that politics is a game played by people somewhere far away for themselves. And that sort of ref unreflexive partisanship has been part of that problem, I would say. But then coming together over issues like this that seem to be of fundamental importance to democracy. Jessica, let me, let me come to you. 
you know, how do we deal with some of the real differences of opinions within our own political parties? In the UK, because of our first past the post system, our political parties have to be very broad churches of interests and traditions and, and things like that. And I certainly would echo Chris's point that on, when I speak to people on the doorstep, they often say to me, why don't we have this like government of common sense? Or, you know, why wasn't there a national coalition, a national unity government during COVID? Mm-hmm. Things like that. So people in times of crisis do want to see their political leaders coming together. And I think you get these differences in opinion within parties like the Labour Party because... It, things like Ukraine don't come in isolation. They come from a long history of our responses to different conflicts and our engagement with different conflicts and different traditions that have developed in response to those conflicts. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, this raises the issue of strategic consensus across different parties and what is actually the truly national or societal interest versus what is short-term ephemeral things or particular party interests as well. Emmanuel Macron, who's been absent from this conversation, last night tweeted a three-word um, meme on Twitter, uh, and it was uni et debout, uh, France uni et debout, united and I suppose you could translate it risen, France united and risen, well it isn't, uh, it's one of the most divided societies, uh, you know, if it were legal there would be tens of thousands of people on the streets supporting Hamas right now. So why I want to finish with Macron, because I think despite the fact that it's more wish than reality, that central appeal, let's have a society that is united and risen in the defence of democracy, is the appeal that the political centre needs to make. United and risen, it rather echoes more in common. Well, my closing reflection is that we are clearly living in an era of very, very rapid change, economic, climate, technological, and we have to acknowledge that that is really unsettling for a lot of people. And that's okay, and I think we need to reassure people that feeling unsettled about change is okay, but the answer is to refocus our attention to dealing with some of the long-term challenges that we're facing. Um, and I've talked a lot about narrative, and I think shifting the narrative in that direction is, is really important. Now, the amazing thing, if I can say that, that the conflict in Ukraine has done, has brought values firmly back into the frame and has given people the confidence to talk about a values-based foreign policy and values-based relationships. And so I think when we're looking to how do we really solve some of the challenges that we face now and going into the future, we have a real window of opportunity to make that a, those that rebuilding process around mutually um, recognised values and using democracy as an organising principle again. Chris, to your closing comments, how do we rise? Well, let's rise to the promise of our values, you know, by, by working for them, by sacrificing for them. I mean, this is what we forgot. We're sitting in the Prague of Václav Havel. This is where it was easiest to, to feel the amazing optimism of 1989, a wall going down, a Warsaw Pact disbanded, a Soviet Union teetering, and then gone. And everyone just assumed that this peace dividend would mean that Europe, remember, Vancouver to Vladivostok, sounds absurd today, would live by the rules of the OSCE and the UN Charter, no more interstate conflicts, gradual embrace of democracy. We just put it on autopilot, assumed that it would happen, that it would spread, that the values were so powerful in and of themselves that 
there would be no serious obstacles. Well, Havel would never have agreed that was going to happen. The rest of us were naive to think that way for too long. Now we see that Russian impunity has continued, that it's become revanchism under Putin. Someone wants to put an empire together, literally an, a, a fallen empire, a disastrous experiment, uh, a prison of nations. He wants to put it back together the way other crazed dictators did in the past. We can't let that happen. And, and the future of democracy really depends on how that story ends in Ukraine and in these other theaters that, that Putin has uh, chosen to, to, to fight in, including Syria. So that's a very hard kinetic challenge that involves defense and so forth. And then there are these more difficult challenges of bringing our democratic debate back into focus, calling out disinformation for what it is, putting the extremes back on the extremes where they belong, making the center more vibrant again. And all that sounds great, but doing it is hard. It's going to be a lot of work. And what's our strength? That we are peers, that we do judge each other's performance, that voters judge us every day. Uh, and we can adopt best practices from the Nordic countries, from Japan, from an African country that is doing well on disinformation or doing well uh, in its economy, in unleashing the potential of technology and advanced manufacturing and uh, energy transition that we know can make people prosperous if it's joined up properly and if it's uh, protected by a democratic debate that is healthy. Um, so defending democracy is something we should have been doing for 30 years. We're now starting to get serious about it. Neo-idealism, I think, is, is a great banner um, to, for all of this to march under. But we're still in the early stages of coming together around this agenda. And, and you're all leaders around this table. I don't see the political leadership in office today in many countries that's, that's sort of saying these things. There's some of it in frontline states uh, who, who see the threat from Russia and from China more clearly every day than the rest of us. But the big democracies haven't caught up, and it's really incumbent upon us to, to, to make sure that happens fast. So to wrap up, I think that what I'm hearing a lot of uh, around this table is that we need to also rediscover our um, ability to think big and to think long term, not simply uh, in terms of in terms of short term benefits. And I would also say that this is something that we can do. We are, as you've said, in the Prague of Václav Havel. We were recently in the Berlin of the fall of the wall, um, which which took <laughs> almost thirty years to happen, but it did. So. Um, you know, we, we were in the Germany of reunification that introduced the euro. We, um, we have two people around the table uh, from a party that, uh, you know, from a party that was at the center at the time, at least, of, of cool Britannia. Uh, for example, uh, they, they, this is something we can do. We democracies know how to do this, but we do need to rediscover our knack for doing it. Thanks so much to Jessica Toll, Chris Alexander, and Paul Mason for joining us for that very special discussion on defending and renewing liberal democracy here in Prague. 
And that's all for this episode of Berlin Side Out. Remember to check out our guests and recent publications in the show notes. And thank you to our team at the DJP, including project assistants Jana Hartmann and Julian Stuckler, and our producer Hendrik Vanna. Please join us next episode as we continue our report of our discussions uh, back from Prague, looking into the strategic choices liberal democracies, including Germany, will need to make in the coming years, including whether liberal democracy is still an attractive model worth spreading. Until then, auf Wiedersehen and tschüss. And, last but I don't know.